We thank you for how good you are to us. We thank you that your mercy is new each morning. We ask God that this morning you would just help us to see your truth, to hear your truth, and be changed by it as we look at your word. We pray, God, that you would sanctify us in your word, which is truth. Lord, um, this morning we just ask that you would be with us and help us to see your glory as we search the pages of Scripture. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so, chapter 7, I'll go ahead and read that, and then I want to hear some of your questions this morning. I have some too, in case everybody stalls out, so it's okay, but, alright. Luke 7, starting verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes. And my servant, Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the uh, bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole, the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he, said, and he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. 
What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having... Uh, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that, that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with her hair, the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Alright. Good long jaunt there. So I am curious to hear some of the questions you guys came up. Maybe starting with kind of the grammar style questions. Just the who, what, where, when kind of stuff. Be bold. Share. So in verses 1 through 10, I was asking who were the people sort of at play in this verse. Um, okay. Jesus, the centurion, the servant who is sick, and then the elders of the Jews. But I was curious who the elders of the Jews, what that was. Okay. 
Yeah, most likely, so I mean, every every town kind of had its own set of elders, you know. Um, so I don't know what town they're coming from. I don't know if it says specifically where the centurion lives, but, you know, the centurion has built their synagogue for them and uh, has shown himself a, a lover of the, the God of the Jews. Uh, but anyway, so these, these would be probably some of the men of that synagogue that were recognized as leaders uh, that, that came and spoke on his behalf. But yeah, each town would kind of have their own set of elders. So. Okay, good. What's another question you came up with? Who was Jesus asked to heal? Okay. The centurion servant. Good. I had what did the centurion do when he heard Jesus coming? Okay. Which is to tell him not to come. Right. But to just hang on there. Yeah, which is interesting. Like, I don't know. I, I, I wonder about that where it's like, well, did he... Did he expect Jesus to just not come at all? And that's what the original message was just, just do it from there. And when he heard Jesus coming, like, oh no, you misunderstood me. I just asked you to just take care of it. Right, you know, like, I don't know. It's kind of it's interesting. Okay, good. Other questions you came up with on the grammar side of things? Who, what, where, when, how? I have, what is Jesus' reaction to the faith shown by the centurion? So, what was his reaction? He marveled. Yeah. Which, I mean, I marvel at that statement, right? The Lord, Jesus, marveled. Like, that's a strange thing when you think about it, right? You know, to just be like put on his heels by what somebody says. You know, it's almost. It almost sounds blasphemous, just about right in the way, but but yeah, how, how do you think about that? But you yeah, know, he's he's amazed, right? This is um, part of this uh, part of this uh, dual nature of Christ. Maybe we're seeing here that in, in his humanity, he is literally just wowed by something he just came across. All right, cool. Um, what else? The centurion would have been a Correct. So he would be in the category of God fear. Um, so, which, if you'll remember, um, and I can't remember already, I don't think Luke's gospel records this. It's probably another gospel, but you, know, you have the incident um, where Jesus comes into the temple and clears it out. There's moneylenders everywhere. Um, you know, if you think about. Now I wish I had the whiteboard. That's all right. Do so you think about you know the the temple? It has kind of this kind of rectangular square, and then there's like a, a rectangle inside that rectangle, right? And that that thing that kind of goes around the whole thing is the outer court, right? And the outer court was the place where that the Gentiles could come and pray and worship the Lord, right? The inner and the inner court was only for the Jews, and then of course you had the holy holies, which only the high priest could go into once a year and all that kind of stuff, right? Well. It was that outer court that they filled with a marketplace. And there's a couple things that are probably going on there. One, um, there might have been a bit of extortion going on. Like, I know you traveled all the way from your town and brought your best lamb, the most spotless you had, but we have more spotless lambs than what you brought. So you went on to the Lord, you should really just leave that thing outside and buy one of these, right? So there's kind of probably some kind of shady business going on to, to extort people. 
But two, they set up in the outer courts, leaving no place for the Gentiles to come and worship the Lord. Um, and this is why Jesus, in, in his wrath towards this whole situation, says that you know my Father's house will be a house of prayer for all the people. Um, and so you understand his reaction better in that context to realize that they had pushed the Gentiles out of the place to worship God. So anyway, but yeah, so this, this centurion would be a Gentile worshiper of Yahweh, right? So, I don't know, it's a little bit of a side story, but I just thought it's worth sharing. Okay, cool. Um, anybody else want to share a grammar question for chapter 7? I had um, just, who did the man send? Who did the centurions send? Good. And that was the Jewish elders. But I, I kind of liked how he, he kind of sent them just so that they could like sing his praise so that Jesus would heal him. Yeah. His valued servant, not just a servant, but his valued servant. Yeah. Yeah, they came saying, he, he's really a worthy man. Look at all these things he's, he's done for us, you know. Um, been, you know, it'd been interesting. Jesus might have just come even if they hadn't said all those things. They just asked, right? <laughs> but yeah, they had to preface it. All right, good. Okay, uh, what did Jesus do for the widow's son? All right. For the widow and her son. Right, right. And that's uh, raised him from the dead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's some, some interesting language in here. Um, you know, I mean, he's, he has compassion on her. He commands her, do not weep, right? Which, I mean, yeah. you know it's tender probably, but it's also a, it's a command. Like, don't do that. You don't need to, right? Um, the reaction of the people in verse 16. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God. That connection is kind of interesting to, to point out that um, there is a, a proper reaction to God's mighty power, and it's fear. And it's not necessarily um, the kind of fear, fear that paralyzes or makes one withdraw. It's the kind of fear that actually draws people in. Isn't that an interesting idea? Yeah. Uh, I mean, why, why is it there are some things that are, are just scary as all get out that you want to get closer to? You know, I mean, you think about people who just want to see how close they can get to the Grand Canyon. I mean, like, it's yeah. terrifying, right? You know, but they just, they're drawn to this magnitude of what it is. Uh, and God is the ultimate example. Okay, good. Other questions? I had what happened because of the miracle was that report was spread. Yes. And if you look at the beginning, it says he brought quite a few people with him. And there were quite a few people at the funeral. So it would be easy to see how yeah. spread as they both Yes, the, the entourage is growing. Good. What else? <coughs> what did Jesus send his disciples to ask? Or excuse me, what did John send his disciples to ask? Okay. Jesus, Good. are you the one that right. we've been waiting for? And then to follow up, what did Jesus do and say in response? Yeah. He performed all these miracles and then yeah. tell them what you've seen. Yes. So yeah, it's, and this is interesting because if you go back to where John's doing his ministry earlier on, right? He has Pharisees and, and scribes come out to him saying, "Are you the Christ?" Yeah. <laughs> and he says, "No." And now John says, "We need to go ask this guy. Is he the Christ?" Which is actually really interesting too when you think about the fact that John has actually already declared, "Behold." the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? But what has happened in John's life since that time? He's in prison, 
he's probably well aware that he's on his way to execution even, right? You could understand some hesitancy, some fear, some, some did I, was it right, you know? <laughs> um, and, and was it all worth it, you know? That kind of stuff maybe going on in his head and heart. Um, and uh, think about, well, I don't want to, I'm, I'm going to move on too fast, so I'll come back to that. I'll come back to that. All right, what else? Any other questions uh, on the, the grammar side of things? We can move on to maybe your logic questions here. What was Simon's reaction to the woman at Jesus' feet? Yeah. And his reaction was he, he doubted and accused Christ of not being a prophet of God. Right. Surely he'd know if he were really a prophet. Surely he would know who this was and wouldn't let her touch him. Good. And what does the sinful woman do to or for Jesus? She washes his feet and pours oil on them. She essentially acted in the way that the Pharisees should have, welcoming him to his home. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and yeah, with the most extreme of humility, right, using her hair to wipe his feet. And you can imagine that, you know, wearing sandals all day and walking through dirt roads. I mean, this isn't uh, Good. All right, well, let's, let's talk about just some logic questions, what, what you've got on that front. What did you come up with? We're starting to ask kind of why the text, why is it this way, or how, what do we take from that? Or maybe drawing connections between other passages. Yeah. Yeah. Why was the faith of the centurion such a uh, good example of faith for us? Okay. Just to answer, he came in full humility and full un- knowing his unworthiness and having complete faith that Christ can do it even without coming. Okay. Good. <clears throat> I imagine yeah. he met Jesus at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which is um, obviously a good example for those of us today. Yeah. Yeah. He's heard of his reputation, right? Yeah. Maybe he's met people that are faithful witnesses to what Jesus has said and done, but doesn't know him personally. Yeah, that's good. That's observation. All right. Other questions that you came up with? I'll go ahead and toss one out here. Um, given what we've read in this gospel so far, why might Luke highlight this particular story concerning the Roman centurion? So is there any kind of theme or trend going on in Luke that might bring Luke to bring about, to highlight this story? He's writing to the Gentiles, or at least we've seen a lot of his writing towards Gentiles. And this is an example of the faith of the Gentiles. Good. Yeah. Any other additional thoughts? I think that's right on. I think there might be a little more we might be able to think about too. It shows how the Gentiles can be included as God's people. I mean, we're transitioning from the Old Covenant to the New here, but okay. prior to this, the Old Covenant is Jews and God-fearers, and most Gentiles are just mm-hmm. to be second-class citizens in the mind of the Jews. So now you have a Gentile who is praised. Okay. So the a member of the Roman army who's an occupier of 
Israel, so probably not also doubly sort of, you know, gosh, these people yeah, you know, right, can be right. one of God's people. Yeah. And I think you also had the contrast between the centurion and the elders. So here are the elders that are supposed to have this right perspective of God, and they come to Jesus based on this man's works right. to motivate Jesus to come and right. to, to do something good for him. Yeah. And he comes and he says, no, I just come to you begging for your mercy to heal my servant. I'm a man under authority. So it sort of shows the centurion has a better perspective and view of who God is and how he works than yeah. even the elders of Israel. Yeah. Good. Yeah, so the, the boundaries are starting to dissolve between Jew and Gentile as the gospel is going forth. I think you're seeing, yeah, like you said, you've got this guy who's got a, a better picture of God's grace, maybe, in some sense, than these elders do. Um, and the fact that he's not just a Gentile, but he's a Roman centurion. Um, and we remember that Luke is written specifically to who? What was the name we have attached to it? Theophilus, and in fact, in, in Luke, it's most excellent Theophilus, right? Which there's at least good reason to suggest that that is a a title of esteem. This is probably some sort of an official, right? So I think tying in not only a Gentile but a Roman centurion, an officer, right? I mean, I don't know. It makes me think that this is just a tie-in to hey, Theophilus. Some of your own people, right, are already seeing who Jesus is. So. Good. More questions? What else to come up with? And uh, why was it important for Jesus to raise the, the son okay. of the woman for life? Yeah. The answer is, um, makes it very clear that he was her only son and she was a widow. So right. she basically didn't have anybody that to care for her. Right. Yeah. Primary means support in that day, for sure. If you don't have a husband, you'd better have sons. And if you don't have that, you're destitute. Right. Yeah. Good. Very good. Um, I'll throw another one. Uh, why does Jesus respond to the question of John's disciples in the way that he does? Why not simply tell them, yes, I am the Christ? Why did he respond in the way that he did? It certainly be more comforting than just hearing Jesus say, yeah, yeah I'm the guy. Actually hearing reports of still healing and uh, casting out demons and uh, something that's actionable and not just okay. your word. Good. Well, I think it's funny that as soon as they leave, then he very point blank yeah. explains it all. That's so true. I mean, he could have just started with that, but instead he waited until all of John's messengers were gone before he just point blank said, I am the one that you guys have been waiting for. Do you remember when Jesus preached in his hometown? What what passage did he pull up? Do you remember? You can go back and look if you want. Couple chapters back. Something in Isaiah. Good. So we want to get there and, and read that aloud for us, maybe. What the the scroll of Isaiah? What part he reads? He unrolled the scroll and found the place 
where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah 61? Yeah, very good. So, with that in mind, coming back to this here in chapter 7, what do you see Jesus doing? Exactly. He is fulfilling prophecy. He is, he is showing that he is the one whom the prophets foretold. And he knows that John... I mean, he could have just said yes. Of course, I'm Christ. Rest easy, guy. Okay, but he knows that John, being a prophet, being a lover of God's word, knowing Isaiah, things like that, right, would probably receive much more comfort and assurance by his his men, his coming back to him, his disciples, saying, "We saw him doing the things that Scripture says the Savior would do," right. So that's just, just pretty big. So he, he knows exactly the way, right way to minister to the heart of John the Baptist in prison, probably about to die. Yes, indeed, the Messiah has died. Good. What other questions you come up with for chapter 7? What mistake did the Pharisee make when he uh, was observing Jesus with the woman? Okay. Yeah, what, what mistake did he make? I think the mistake that he made was that our view towards sinners should be absolute separation so right. away from those people. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I definitely had that same thought and observation as I was rereading it this week, you know, that he makes a couple faulty assumptions, doesn't he? You know? One... He must not know who this is, right? And two, because if he did, he would certainly separate from her and not let her touch it, right? Uh, and you know, talk about incarnational ministry. He's the actual incarnation, right? But like, but it's it's being in and amidst the sin, right? Um, and and as Jesus will make the point and elsewhere, you know, it, it's not that it's not what you physically come into contact with that makes you unclean, but it's what comes out of the heart. So he's not, he has no concern about the sinful woman tainting him in any way, shape, or form, right? Um, and honestly, this Pharisee should, if he's really one of God's people, have compassion on a woman like this and be pointing her towards the Lord. But rather he and his kind of culture that's embedded in that time says, we want nothing to do with him. Yeah, but he wasn't even consistent with his own culture because he didn't wash Jesus' feet, so he didn't even, right. you know, sort of do that cleansing yeah. that he should have done. So even if he took his own standard, I mean, he violated his own standard, is basically what right. Right. he did. Yeah. Judging, so. Yeah. Well, it shows you kind of that. I mean, well, you can't know for sure, I guess, but you know, if we're looking at the motives of the heart, right? Why did he even ask Jesus to come eat with him? I mean, he's clearly not honoring him as a guest. Okay. So is he there just out of pure curiosity to see what he'll say? 
is this just another step towards trying to catch Jesus in something wrong, you know, that they can get him in trouble for, whatever. But yeah, he skips social protocols, right? And, and uh, so yeah, good. Um, I'll throw another one out. What, what parallels do you see between the story of the sinful woman who comes to Jesus in chapter 7 and the paralytic in chapter 5? Talked about that last week, but what parallels what might we draw between those two stories? Did you know what we were saying? One could walk and one could Okay, good contrast, yeah. What one has to be brought, the other crawls to Jesus. In both instances he forgets their sin and people throw fit about it. Yeah. <laughs> What's this guy doing? Jeez. Okay, good. What else? Oh, both were not necessarily invited in. Both had to make a way in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both really just they blow through social convention, right? And they just they just boldly, brazenly come before the Lord. Okay. Uh, which is on that front, right, that Jesus praises their faith. Uh, you got, in the first case, you have friends, like, tearing a hole in the guy's roof to lower him down, right? And then you have the who's who of sinners in town, right, walking into the front door of a Pharisee's house where Jesus is, which is a pretty, it's a pretty bold move, you know? Um, but in both cases... Their faith is rewarded by forgiveness of sins, uh, and of course, in the the paralytic's case, also physical. So, but I think it's a it's a pretty good and powerful picture that when it comes to coming to Jesus, nothing else matters, right? No, nothing should hold us back from coming to the Lord with repentance and, and, and seeking his forgiveness and seeking relationship with him. Um, we could probably come with a lot of analogies here, but you know, any kind of social conventions or social constraints that we might perceive that, that keep us distant from the Lord, those are the things we ought to trample on on the way to getting closer to the Lord, right? Uh, well, you, can't, you can't share the gospel with people at work. What are you doing? Jesus says to. Sorry. You know, I mean, this is whatever it might be, like, coming to him and doing his will beats everything else. All right, any more on, on chapter 7? Any kind of question that you wanted to throw out there that you had? I was just going to point out that between the paralytic and this woman, the first thing he does is forgives their sins. Right. It's the healing. Right. Yeah, fixing their physical and worldly problem. First thing he does is produce their sin. Yeah, he addresses the greater need first. Good. Anything else? Chapter 7. This is not a fully big question, as always. I'm just here for bringing entertainment. But um, just what struck me throughout 7 and 8 was just what was the significance of all of these different denials or unlikely 
farmers having such serious faith and how does that and yet there are a lot of people like the Pharisees and others that that were doubting who he was who should have been the first to receive him and does that have any kind of bearing on you know our tendencies to be blind sometimes to who Jesus is as something like that yeah. <laughs> Did you have any thoughts of your own? Yeah, okay. Right. <laughs> I was struck in verse 29 of chapter 7 about, you know, the different people's responses. You know, how did people respond? You had those that heard this and the tax collectors too. They declared God just. You know, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Yeah. really clear. Right. Delineation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I read that parenthetical comment there, and I, I sometimes don't know how to. I don't know how to take it sometimes because part of it is like, yeah, yeah, we got baptized by John. Yeah, tell him Jesus. You know, like I don't know if it's kind of like that, or if it's a more like humble kind of. Yes, Lord, you're right. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like I could read it both ways, and I sometimes wonder. You know, if it was a party line kind of thing or what. But but nonetheless, you do have the fact, right, that that these people did come contrite to receive the baptism of John. They, and, and I think if nothing else, what it does draw across, right, is that those who receive John's ministry are seeing the Messiah. I mean, you see that connection, right? Like those who submitted to the repentance of baptism, uh, or the baptism of repentance, I should say. Um, are the ones whose heart was cleansed and ready when the Lord appeared. And so the others who didn't do that, who didn't follow whom Jesus says is the greatest prophet among men, right? Um, they're looking Jesus in the face and they can't see him. Good. Well, let's go ahead and jump into chapter 8. Um, throw out some grammar questions first. What you got? Who are traveling with Christ as well? Who were traveling with Christ in verse one? Okay, it's the twelve disciples and some women that um, some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Yeah. Good. What else? I had I nuanced it's basically the same question by saying who provided for the Lord and his twelve apostles as they went about proclaiming the gospel, right? Because these same women are are basically out of their own means, you know, helping to care for the, uh, the needs of Jesus and his apostles, right? Um, so they're so busy out there preaching the gospel and and in some cases, you know, healing and all kinds of things that. They can't. They can't earn money. There's no time for that, right? And so you have you have these women faithfully serving and supporting the ministry uh, and making sure they they get to eat something. Basically. All right. Other questions for. Okay. What did Jesus do when the crowds gathered around him? Okay. Are you looking at... Uh, oh, in verse 4, just gotcha. that, that he sat down and he told them a okay. parable. Yeah, 
what is the greater context that the parable of the sower and the seed is told in? When you take out the chapter and verse divisions, you see this movement, you know, that he's been ministering to the sinful woman, and then now these women with these different backgrounds, the Jews would have rejected her traveling with him, and he speaks about this parable of the sower and the seeds and how right. different receptions of what's mm-hmm. known. Good. Yeah, good. Yeah, so we're we're seeing uh, you know, we're seeing the different kinds of ground in different people, right? Some are hardened and resistant completely. Others seem to latch on at first but don't follow through. And others become fruitful. Good, what else? Uh, for what reason does Jesus say that he speaks in parables to the people? Basically, so that uh, the justified would understand. Okay. And those, uh, those that did not understand, uh, or those that did not have faith would not understand. Okay. Good. Is, uh, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Um, which I'll just go ahead and ask a, the logic question I've connected with that, but why in the world does he want to do that? Why, why does he want to speak in such a way that some people don't understand? That, that, I mean, doesn't that seem... Doesn't that seem messed up? Like, aren't you, aren't you supposed to be a teacher? Like, aren't you supposed to speak in ways that people can understand? Like, what, why is Jesus doing that? Because the ones that want to understand from the past. Okay. draws them to him are those that... Because, I mean, there are lots of people there, but only, it says, when his disciples asked him. So clearly it wasn't for everybody. So just those that kind of follow him. Yeah, this, this is an interesting point that that one of our pastor friends, I think, pointed us out at one point, um, that every single time Jesus speaks in parables, if anybody comes to him and asks him what did that mean, he tells them. So you have the crowds to whom he shares this parable, right? And a lot of people are probably sitting there going, that's a thinker, you know? And they may leave later that day and just not, you know, man, I'll, I'll be thinking on that for a while. I don't know what he was talking about, you know? But you have those who come to him and say, Lord, what, what's that about? What does that mean? He says, let me tell you. Right? And I think that's really interesting that, he, that his sheep, right, press in against him and say, we want to know more. We want to have understanding. Um, and he doesn't withhold understanding from those who seek him and, and ask for it. So I think that does show you a, a difference in heart, a difference in attitude between the kind of people listening to Jesus. What other questions you come up with? We can just open up, because we're on the latter half of this time. Let's go ahead and open up to whatever kind of question you want to ask. How did the the disciples respond to Jesus calling the storm? Okay. It says that uh, they were fearful and amazed. Uh-huh. Well, and then, are we out of 
theological question kind of tied to that of what's the significance of Christ calming the storm. Okay. And that that's just another uh, evidence of uh, him being God. Yeah. No man has control over weather. That's 100% in God's hands. Right. Yeah, there. Uh, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? And it's interesting. I mean, that question is so revealing of even of his closest disciples, right? Who is this guy? Like, we've been spending day after day after day, and he just does stuff new every day, and we're like, where did that come from? I didn't know you could do that. You think you could walk on water? <laughs> you know, like, I mean, just, they just keep blowing his mind. He keeps blowing their minds, right? Uh, and you do have this, this picture that... I, I'm sure they're all convinced at this point that he's the Messiah, but that doesn't mean they haven't figured out who he really is, right? I mean, I don't know. It's I don't know if that dawns on them completely until after the resurrection, right? And it's it's hardness of heart, right? Because he says it in very many ways in different times, and but this is one of the ways he's shouting it, right? And they're asking the right question: Who who is this that can do these things, right? Um, just like the Pharisees actually asked the right question, who but God alone could forgive sins? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Catch on, right? Um, so good, yeah. That's, that's a good question. What else? I like the um, I like the order of how the the storm uh, story plays out. That they they come to him and they're pleading with him, saying we're about to we're about to die. He didn't even say anything to him. He just got up and he calmed the winds and then said, where's your thing? Yeah. And uh, that would be pretty convicting, I right. think. <laughs> that he saved, he saved them first and then he turns to him and goes, what's going on? Like, yeah. why, why can't you trust me at this point? Yeah. You've seen me heal the sick. You've yeah. seen me cast out demons. You've seen me raise the dead. You see, I mean, like, why, why are you so worried right now? Well, and then there's almost a sense of they, they woke him up saying, we're not to die, do something. Right. And yet, still don't believe it when he does something. Right. We just thought he would paddle, you know? <laughs> we just thought he would grab the, the rope and try to hold the stern where it's supposed to be, you know? We just needed help. We didn't know he was going to do that. And I think it a really uh, important takeaway uh, or um, application for us here is that being with Jesus didn't mean no storms, yeah. um, but that, you know, that he's in control of right. those situations. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like we looked at in, the, in Luke's shortened version of the Sermon on the Mount, right? You have the house built on the rock and the house built on the sand, and the storm comes to both houses, right? The one stand. Good. Other questions in chapter 8? I don't know if this is a question or maybe an observation. Okay. But they get in the boat, they go through the storm, they go over there, he heals one man, and they send him away. So, like, they went all that way for just the one man. Uh huh. But then you see at the end, like, that one man shares what happened to him. Right. Yeah, that's so a good they observation. Went in that, for that long journey just for that one man. 
Yeah, I hadn't really even thought about it like that. That's, that's a good observation. What else? Why do the Gerasenes urge Jesus to leave them even after he has solved a significant problem for them by healing the wild, demon-possessed man? I mean, you get the context here that they've repeatedly tried to chain him and secure him, and he... He's probably quite a nuisance and a concern, right? And here Jesus is, has cast these demons out, so why do they react in the way that they do? Well, they, they were afraid. I mean, he, he walks in and he heals a man that I mean, has been even possessed into them is insane for years, probably. Uh, destroys, essentially, a herd of pigs by sending the demons into them and they all jump off the cliff. I mean, to them, their world's been shaken in just a matter of minutes. Yeah. Sure. You ever thought about how odd it is that there's a herd of pigs there? Yes. <laughs> well, my question, I couldn't find a map last night. So is this Jerusalem? Is that in Israel? This would be an Israelite town. Okay, so that's, yeah. <laughs> So there's already some sort of strange unfaithfulness happening here, right? Um, now, maybe they would probably, you could imagine, I don't know, right? You could imagine the justifications going on here. Well, we don't actually eat the pigs. We just sell the pigs to the Gentiles. It's a good business, you know? We make lots of money off of those Romans or whatever, you know? I don't know. But, but yeah, here you have this whole herd of pigs. They're not even supposed to touch. That's what's going near. And it's probably a very, I mean, a very significant source of money for somebody or numerous somebodies in that town. Right? Um, so, why does Jesus, later on in the story where he's on his way to Jairus' house, why does Jesus draw a distinction between the many who are pressing on him from every side and the woman who is healed? the same question I wrote now. Okay. Um, but it's the difference is the faith. Uh, she she touched him, believing that just a single touch would heal her. Whereas there wasn't that uh, distinct and direct faith from the others pressing around him. Yeah. Uh, questions you have? When they get to Jairus' house, why does Jesus only allow three of his disciples, namely Peter, James, and John, and the parents to enter into the room of the girl who has died? It says very explicitly that he only allows them as Now, there may have already been some weepers in the room, I guess, but professional weepers. I say that, I don't know if anybody is aware, but like literally that's what they probably were, right? That um, it was a tradition that you would actually hire paid mourners and some if you were a wealthy family when somebody died in your family or was on their deathbed, you'd hire paid mourners to come make a big scene of it all, right? Which is why these people go from weeping to laughing instantly. Right. When Jesus says, She's not dead, she's asleep. I mean if it's this if this was a family member 
you can't just go from weeping to laughing, right? They might go to indignant, say, no, she's clearly dead, Lord. You know, you can see the kind of reaction somebody might have, right? But to start laughing, it's just this kind of cold and different kind of thing that's going on. Uh, but why, why do you think that he limited who could come in? Well, I mean, going back to the paid mourners, I mean, uh, if the paid mourners were in there and laughed at that comment, they did not have the faith. They're, I mean, they didn't believe that she, he could raise her from the dead. They didn't believe any of this. And the family obviously did because they sent for him. And, and you see Jesus do this quite often when he is revealing something very intimate about himself. He calls for that inner circle of disciples, you know, just like with the Transfiguration and yeah. examples like that. He'll call just those three to show them. Yeah. Yeah, Peter, James, and John get to be closer, Lord, in a number of different occasions than the rest. And I don't think the scripture ever explicitly says why, uh, but it is interesting to note, right? There's a. It's a book I read years ago. It's one of those books, like, it had a good positive effect on me, but it's been so long since I've read it, I can't recommend it without, you know what I mean? Like, I just don't know if it's totally sound or not. But I, but the thing that I take with me still from the book, right, um, was about Jesus' method of disciple-making. Um, and it, it emphasized that Jesus would spend time with the crowds. He would spend time with the twelve. And he would spend specific times with the three, right? And, and he had this, this way of broadcasting the gospel message to anybody who's willing to listen. He had a closer group of, of associates who he really spent a lot of his day and life with, right? And then he had three that basically were never separate from him. And just the principle that this book drew out, you know, is that, you know, notice how Jesus really made disciples was that he didn't, he, he didn't, um, well, basically, he took a relatively small group of people and he just poured everything into them all the time, right? Um, and he, he took them with him everywhere. And, he, you know, basically, Jesus, some of these guys, he basically took with him on the equivalent of grocery shopping, you know, just spending time with them no matter what he's doing, they're with him. Um, so, I mean, although I don't, even to my own question here, I don't have a perfect answer to why he just took Peter, James, and John, but, but there is a certain sense in which he had these three picked out as ones that he was going to pour everything into and let them see everything that he did. Um, and obviously, it's not hard to tell that Peter, James, and John made a pretty significant difference in the early church, right? Not that, not, not that some of his other disciples and apostles didn't also. Um, but you think about the term discipleship is caught, not taught, right? The phrase there. And I think there's truth to what Jesus is doing in that as well. Um, oh, so um, consider Luke eight nineteen through twenty one. What is Jesus trying to tell us about the relationship we have to our blood relatives versus our brethren in the Lord? Does he mean to suggest that there is a priority in relationship? Absolutely. There's the, the verses, those who don't hate 
brother or sister or mother or father, and this is less strong, but right. the, the principle there is the same. But yeah. The greater bond is brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. You know, ultimately, you don't really choose your biological family. Right. So some of them could be upright and somewhat just, humanly speaking, and others could just be scoundrels. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, all of God's families chosen by God to choose, choose his people out of biological families. And that's the priority. Doesn't mean you don't care for them. Sure. But if there's a conflict, you go with your spiritual family and your biological family. Which is hard. And right. it certainly causes tension when Jesus addresses them elsewhere. Right. Struck me that in all the accounts of these two chapters, at least, everybody who desired for Jesus to come to them or to see him, he answered and went. Yeah. But here it seems like, I mean, we don't know the full thing, but it seems like he's saying, No, I'm not answering their call to see me. Yeah. Well, I don't know for sure that this is the same parallel situation as reported in another gospel. Where it says that Jesus and or Jesus' mother and brothers came for him, believing that he was out of his mind. Okay, now I don't know for sure this is the same situation being referred to because it doesn't have that detail here, but it could be, and so it would definitely be drawing out that that distinction of non-believing versus those who are believing. Who am I going to spend time with, right? Um, but yeah, it's a possibility. Good. Any other questions you had on anything Luke 7 or 8? Okay. Well, uh, I you know I have questions for you already for next week. Uh, I, I hope that the exercise was beneficial to you. Like the reason that I try to push people to do this stuff sometimes is because by Learning to ask good questions, right? We become better students of not only the Bible, but of anything we're reading, really. Um, and so it's important that we start with the, the grammar questions, the what is of the text, before we go to any kind of interpretive thing, right? And then again, these, these rhetoric questions, which that last question I asked you was kind of in that category, is, is just trying to get to, so how do you see it, how do you understand it, how would you apply it, that kind of thing. Um, but very often we, we skip past the, the necessary work of asking the text important questions before we start trying to make applications to our life, right? So we can continue to be good students, as I know you will be. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the time we have together as your church to worship and praise you. Uh, pray to be with Pastor Franks as he brings the word this morning that your Holy Spirit would come into our midst and convict our hearts of any sin that we need to deal with, Lord, but it would also encourage us in faithfulness and help us to walk more closely with our Lord that we would trample any social conventions that get in our way of following you more closely. Um, Lord, that we would not be like Pharisees who try to determine who can and cannot draw near the Lord, but that we would share the gospel with all around us um, and be ready to receive our brothers and sisters in Christ as our own family, even closer family sometimes than, than blood relatives, Lord. We thank you for the gospel that, that brings down the dividing wall of hostility between all kinds of people. There is no Jew nor Gentile. There is no slave or free. There is no black, white, Asian, Hispanic. Lord, in Christ, we are all one in your family. Help us, Lord, to see that truth, proclaim that truth, and live that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.